For a successful technology, reality must take precedence over public relations. For nature cannot be fooled. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your hosts in England and the Netherlands. Matthew Russell and Julio Prayer. Oh yeah, baby, baby. Richard Feynman. Feynman. You went for Richard, I went for Dick. Dickie Feynman. What a character. Yeah, what a character. I'm going to go as far as saying he's, he's my number one favourite. And you introduced me to him. Really? Well, I heard the name before, but I, I had never read him or watched his lectures. He was kind of a big deal in the US and for you guys. But uh, back in Argentina, when I was a kid, it was not a name uh, that reached me, you know, when the... There was no internet, so I had access to what I got in in my bookshelf and in the local library, and that was Asimov, Sagan, mm. uh, Arthur C. Clarke, but no Feynman. I, I had Stephen Hawking. I, I read Stephen Hawking when mm. I was a kid, but not Feynman. And I wish I had. I wish I had. What a character. Uh, I, yeah, yeah. I have become a big fan. <laughs> so I have been going through some of the books recently. So have you read um, What Do You Care What Other People Think? I did. Because that's did. the one that's got the bit where he goes to do investigate the shuttle disaster. And it's really yes. interesting. Uh, it's, I think the chapter is called Mr. Feynman Goes to Washington. So based, interesting. And based on that, there is a, a BBC movie, which I just watched for the first time two nights ago, mm-hmm. trying to ra- dramatize that uh, the Rogers Commission and the investigation. Is it Bill Pullman? I think the name of the actor is William Hurt. Actually, he's in the Marvel Universe playing um, like the big general. So he plays Secretary of State of the United States in all the Marvel movies. Oh, okay. He's uh, the guy behind the Sokovia Accords and and these sort of things in the the Marvel movies. He was playing Richard Feynman in this movie, which uh, is called, I think it's called... uh, It's just called The Challenger, isn't it? No, it's called The Challenger Disaster. And it's actually a TV movie. I rather enjoyed it. I I remember watching it when it came out and it was really good. I I thought it was really good. I like the... um, Because it's set in the backdrop that Feynman finds out that he's definitely going to die of cancer as well, isn't it? Yeah, but... You know, having read the book, uh, in the book, he does not play it like that. There is no, no. This parallel. It reminds me a little bit of the of the Freddie Mercury movie recently, uh, what was mm. Bohemian Rhapsody, in mm. which uh, for the, <laughs> I think for the final, for the Wembley, I think it was the Wembley. Yeah, for the Live Aid. For, for, the live live, aid, for yeah. the Live Aid, they played like he finds out that he has AIDS then, but in reality it happened like two years after. So I think it's for drama purposes, they shifted some some of the time. Also oh, in, the yeah, movie, I mean... in the movie, they make much more dramatic how he finds information when in the book it's like, yeah, the engineers gave it to me. <laughs> you know? yeah. Oh, no, no. So, oh, yeah. I think, this, I think The Challenger is probably more accurate a documentary than Bohemian Rhapsody, though. Yeah. <laughs> Well, like I was saying, having read the book and 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 knowing a little bit of of how the investigation went, the movie took some liberties. This yeah. this movie from twenty thirteen took some liberties to make it a little bit more dramatic. The the one document that came out of the Challenger disaster that Feynman wrote is is the Appendix F, the personal observations of yes. Richard Feynman. Yes, and I I think that's a it's must amazing. Read for him. 
It yeah. is a must read, isn't it? It's like it's it a must read for about- every every space engineer. It's it's just homework. Go read it. It's only a few pages. It's actually mm. entertaining. And yeah, uh, I actually, you know what? Um, I I just read it two days ago, and I want now I want to add it to the show notes. The thing that it goes into is this kind of huge discrepancy between management and the engineers about roughly how many times you'd have to fly the shuttle before it blows up. <laughs> and well, the, the, okay, uh, it's no, just, no, 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 no. It kind of is. What that, is it? the likelihood of failure of a certain component? Basically, he goes to the guys making the main engines and asks the engineers to engineers and management at that level to just give him the the best estimate they can get on. I'll give you the first line. It says, it appears that there are enormous differences of opinion as to the probability of failure with loss of vehicle and human life. The estimates range from one in a hundred to one in a hundred thousand. <laughs> and yeah. that's what, and that's kind of what it's about, isn't it? It's like, why is there this massive lack of agreement between yeah, it continues, those two figures? It continues, uh, the higher figures comes from working engineers and the very low figures from management. What are the causes and consequences of this lack of agreement? Since one part in 100,000 would imply that one could put a shuttle up each day for 300 years, expecting to lose only one, we could probably ask, what is the cause of management's fantastic faith in the machinery? Yeah, I mean, that kind of nails it, isn't it? What is the cause of management's fantastic faith in the machinery? So he goes to the engineers, and I think he gets different numbers, but we can get to like one in 200 of the shuttle main engines would fail, right? Yeah. And then he goes, and of course, if you have different components, components with that if one of them fails, the whole flight fails, you Mm. sort of have to multiply the probability. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And normally you should calculate the the reliability bottom up, component by component, until you reach the top. Mm-hmm. But um, from the top side, they were saying one in one hundred thousand. I assume the reason was because this is manned or crude, you know. And and <laughs> uh, uh, well, I mean, it, but it, where is that it, coming from? What does it mean? Yeah. I know, but the, no? the, my my favorite bit in it is that he points out that really, it's there's this there was this mentality of working the wrong way round. It's like it, they everyone was in agreement that those are the figures for unmanned rockets, but because a manned rocket, the the probability of success should be close to one. It's like it's like they were taking that to say it's the probability is close to one that it will be a success, rather than saying. That's got nothing to do with it. That's the desired outcome, not the. <laughs> it says, does it mean it's close to one, or that it ought to be close to one? And of course, it's it's the fact that it's ought to be close to one, not that it is close to one. And it's just brilliant how he kind of points out how this kind of creep happens, where and you go from one of the one of the examples was uh, with the blades of the turbo pumps, in which you sometimes detect. Uh, cracks or fissures on the material, mm. right? But when you dis- when you design those blades, you do not decide- design them for them to develop cracks in mind. That's not part of the design. But because <laughs> they were flying and they would develop these cracks, but they would not fail, they would deem them safe enough. And then you would just replace them with time. Mm. But 
the moment you find a, a hairline, a, a crack there, that's a, he says, for me, that's a failure, right? Mm. Even if the mission is not lost, it's a failure of that component. And you were lucky <laughs> that the yeah. mission went through, but you still have a failure. Because then what that turn is in, in, in a culture of, okay, because it didn't fail last time, it won't fail next time. But there is yeah. no guarantee of that. Yeah, well, right? it, it, that's what he says. He says there's logical arguments for this apparent creep of thinking that, yeah, the vehicle's really reliable. But it, but he sort of points out, actually, they're not logical arguments at all. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's just we, super interesting. We know that the, well, we know... The, the report pointed that the main cause of the accident was this, um, uh, the cold te temperatures effects on the O-rings that connect hmm. two segments of the solid boosters. That's history by now. But the, this, this particular text that we're talking about goes into that part, also on the liquid fuel engine on the SS SSME, on hmm. the space shuttle main engine. But also on the avionics computers, that part is also quite entertaining to read, or maybe entertaining for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's, and there is a section that I, of the book that I bring up with our guest Bob Seek, and and what a, what a great interview this is, and that's kind of why we're 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 talking about the shuttle because Bob Seek was part of that. Well, was part of it. In fact, he actually. Am I right in saying that he actually also was part? Well, presented to this. Uh, Rogers report and the committee. He actually. Yeah, well, okay. Bob Sick, our interviewee, uh, he used to be, he's now retired, but he used to be a director of shuttle processing down or up <laughs> at, the, at the Kennedy Space Center. Uh, but also, he was involved with most previous programs. He was hmm. definitely involved with Apollo. Uh, he goes in detail um, over his uh, career during the interview. Mm -hmm. And indeed, when I was uh, doing some research, uh, yeah, he presented to the Rogers Commission, let's say the topics around his job, you know, how the shuttle, shuttle is processed, Kennedy Space Center. But that's normal. It's um, how, how to say you had an army of NASA employees and NASA experts explaining yeah. to the commission uh, what was going on. But what I... Sometimes for me it's mind blowing that then you you have him presenting to Feynman and Neil Armstrong and Sally Wright and you're just doing a presentation to them. To me that's yeah. mind blowing. I know. Well, yeah. Well, the, yeah. It's yeah. The people on the Rogers Commission are amazing. Neil Armstrong, <laughs> Feynman, Sally Ride, this Donald Kutnier, who was the person that kind of um, pointed. Well, Sally Ride also did, didn't she? She was the one that pointed to the O-ring, so Feynman, they kind of pushed Feynman in the right direction. But there's Chuck Yeager as well. Chuck Yeager was on that commission. Yes, but uh, that Sally Ride was the informant in a way. Mm, yeah. That did not come out until like 1998 or something, after, mm. after, she, uh, after she passed. That's mm. when that came out, that it was her which is also a, a, an interesting bit of history on the transparency back in the day and how they could not come forward fully transparent on what they thought the causes were or giving all the information because of their connections and their, their responsibilities. 
But I mean, I guess that's why Feynman was there because it's like he's absolutely untouchable because he's not he's not in the, that industry. He's not tied to NASA. He's this. The point like, is that he was the only true independent. independent yeah. Yeah, he was. And no, and I assume that for the rest of the, well. I, I assume that for the rest of the commission, he was kind of a pain in the ass. Oh God, he must have been because he's like he's yeah. the ultimate person. Because they were they were even discouraging him from going to see, go to all these different facilities. But he went anyway to chat with people, and I just love the fact. I love the fact that Feynman took it really seriously. The yeah. ultimate disruptor, and because if you read his books, he he was always into doing the weird thing. Yeah, the, the I mean, transparent, fully honest thing, no matter what you think. Yeah. He nah, did not care yeah. what you think. So, anyway, <laughs> no, I don't care what you think. <laughs> let's, uh, let's go back to our interview, Bob. Um, so, anyway, he joined NASA in 1964 as a Gemini, Gemini spacecraft systems engineer. He goes over that and how he was working with the uh, heart monitors, the, car, the, car, the cardiac system monitors, mm. uh, and the communication to the outside so they could see how the heart of the astronauts was behaving. If you think about it, this is how today we have those heart rate bands when you're running and you can monitor your heart. Mm. That comes from this technology development push from those years for those missions. And not, not, just those, on any, yeah, not just on any space flight, but all the famous space flights there have ever been up until the end of the shuttle era. <laughs> It's like Basically. he did it for on John Glenn, he did it on Neil Armstrong, and he did it on John Young. You know, yep. the person measuring John Young's ridiculously low heart rate for STS one. <laughs> he was for Apollo <laughs> for Apollo he was spacecraft team project engineer. And then in 1976, uh, he became the engineering manager for the shuttle approach and landing tests at Dryden. Yeah. And, and he's the chief shuttle project engineer for STS-1 all the way through to STS-7. I mean, what a career! If you yeah, want I mean, to leave insane. a mark, if you want to leave a mark in the in the, <laughs> <laughs> in the beginning of uh, the whole aerospace history, you cannot go wrong. If we go between Gemini and shuttle, it's no. what a career! It's 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 really insane when you think what these guys went through and and how they made history, right? Yeah, I mean, we, he goes through his whole career, so I think we, he, yeah, it's we we should just listen to it. We, yeah, I mean, the, the interview the interview kind of says it all. It's a really interesting one. It's quite a long one as well, so we probably shouldn't spend too like too much rabbiting on. But just one thing, uh, okay. just to add that uh, Bob comes into the picture. Well, he's one more of of these um, colleagues uh, from this club like Dave Concanon and, mm. and Kathy Sullivan that uh, we have in common. And when we did the interview to Dave Concanon, he mentioned how uh, one, there was this guy that had like the breakfast club of the retired people of all mm -hmm. these projects and that he's the one that pointed him to Lee Solid, who then had the documents or for the trajectories where to find the rocket engines. Well, that guy is Bob Sick. So we're getting all the picture together. We still need to get uh, solid. Oh yeah, <laughs> so, Lee Solid would be a great guest. Yeah. It, it, anyway, be, yeah, I've seen um, the interviews. Really cool. Uh, yeah. yeah. So tell us a little bit about Ariane Five. Man, we we launched it last week. It's a relief. It's a relief because <laughs> any rocket launch that goes well is a relief. 
Every <laughs> single rocket launch that goes well is a relief on any rocket that you mention. Mm-hmm. Because as for, for previous uh, for previous reasons. Not there's, for previous reasons, well, but there's, I more mean, like there's hundreds of because, thousands of parts, right? I mean, you think you, I mean, rocket technology and rocket launches are still not a given. You still have reliability. You're not at the, the level of reliability of airplanes, right? So any rocket launch from any rocket, if you're involved with it, it has to be it has to make you nervous. If not, you don't really understand what you're what you're doing. I suppose it's best not to think about it if you're sitting on top of one. <laughs> well, it's good. First of all, it's good to be stressed because it makes your mind sharper, and it's good then after to be relieved so you can go back to your normal self. But what was special about this one? Um, the first special thing is that this was uh, there is this launch, then another one, and then the James Webb. Mm. And it's very important that all goes well. Yeah, all right. Is. Oh my god, big priority. Um, second, well, it, it, it was one of the typical uh, geosynchronous transfer injection orbit missions, carrying two satellites, and is a typical configuration of having one big satellite of around six tons. In this case, Star One D two. And the second one going in the lower compartment, uh, it's normally a, sec- a secondary payload uh, between that they tend to be around 3.5 tons, you know, to four mm-hmm. tons, just to to reach the the performance of an Ariane 5, around 10 tons. I, I, I have the exact numbers, but there is no point now. <laughs> I go search for them. Uh, but the second one was um, a satellite called uh, Utelsat Quantum. And this satellite oh, yeah, in particular, is, yeah, really interesting. Yeah, it, yes, it, it made quite a splash in the news in the UK actually because, okay, it's developed by Airbus. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of private uh, public partnership with ESA. But what's interesting is that the the satellite itself can be reprogrammed in orbit, so you can change the configuration for data and transmission and communications over a period of 15 years. Um, telecom satellites, sometimes you have to, you design for the mission that they are going to carry, for the area they are going to cover. Mm-hmm. This one you can reprogram in case you want to use it for something else. So uh, the claim is that uh, this is the first commercially fully flexible software-defined satellite in the world. Yeah, I, I think we mentioned. I think I mentioned it at the, at the start of the year as as a sort of good one to look for because I think yeah. it is. It's in, it is interesting. It's obviously it's obviously the way forward, isn't it? If you're going to send, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds worth of equipment in to have it flexible is pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's important that it's a sort of way, it's a sort of reusability in orbit, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, for instance, uh, it, you can reprogram so that the beams can be redirected to move in almost real time to give information to passengers on, on a plane. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's Or uh, you can also adjust it to deliver more data when demand surges in a certain region. And that's really impressive. I mean, it's, they're impressive enough as it is, these things. Like, I've, I've seen... I've seen actual satellites that haven't been flown, geosynchronous satellites that haven't been flown. There's one in the Science Museum. And 
the, the kind of aerials, the K-band aerials that I have on them are, are sort of shaped in, in... They look like they've got dents and damage, damage to the actual aerials, but they're, they're not. They've been shaped in a particular way to sort of focus on certain areas on the ground, and it's just like unbelievable pieces of technology that are actually amazing. Yeah, exactly, and, and I have to give props to your country... By the way, because yes. the UK, uh, the UK is, is is leading in investment in this area. There's a reason yep. why ESA has one of its centers, the one specialized on telecommunication uh, in Harwell, in, in mm. Harwell. And then, um, yeah, it's it's really it's an well, area it's- where ESA and 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 mostly UK industry pioneer in uh, aspects of doing the programs as a public-private partnership mm. rather than the government paying for the whole funding yeah maybe because in the telecom industry you already have a market and you already have a, a secure uh, revenue stream so you're in a better position for doing these sort of deals but at the end of yeah. the day the taxpayer gets more uh gets more for their money right yeah 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 i mean it, it, i mean the uk builds a very high percentage of satellites include especially geosynchronous ones i believe so it's like yeah. there's a lot of expertise there isn't there so it is one that that obviously is what everyone's really excited about this week is that starships being stacked on <laughs> onto a super heavy booster yeah. which is which 120 uh, meters i think yeah that's pretty that's pretty tall isn't it uh, well it seems to be the uh, the tallest yet assembled rocket in the world. Ever. Yeah, I saw some claim, some claims uh, <laughs> around today in Twitter. I understand everyone is very excited and everyone is follow up, following closely, but I hear statement. I, I read statements like, "This is the biggest, most powerful, tallest rocket ever flown." Well, it has not flown yet. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it flies. Right. I hope it goes yeah. well, but. Just wait a little bit before making these statements. Don't. Yeah. Don't. I mean, it. It's, I mean, it seems odd, though, doesn't it? Because they don't really have full FAA approval, do they? Either. I'm sure they will get it. It's a matter of weeks. But uh, <laughs> pity we don't have Ken here today. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I look forward to see this thing fly. I remember. Oh my god! Yeah. I remember this, seeing the Falcon Heavy and how cool that was to see that. Uh, yeah, while doing the podcast, I think all the really exciting launches have been, yeah, Falcon Heavy, Falcon landings, and the Starship landing when it worked the, that first time. But yeah, this is this is this may be of an order of magnitude even more exciting if they pull it off. <laughs> it's just a, it will be an absolute phenomenon. But my 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 bet is that it's not going to be plain sailing for this because it's it's an inc- like it's an incredibly. What's the record on success on first launches of rockets? Was it like? Well, it certainly didn't go well for Ariane Five, did it? The first launch. I remember reading once. Uh, it should be quite easy to to verify, but I remember something like two thirds or mm. on on that range. Obviously, a big number of those failures came from the first iterations of mm. first rockets when we're still trying to figure out how to do a rocket in the first place, right? But um, this is surely the and most now amount. you could expect with, with with the level of knowledge that we have on rocketry and the level of simulation that you can do and the level of testing that you can do, your odds are much better. But still remember how for Falcon Heavy, that was 
using the Falcon 9 design with, okay, with stack, um, let's say adding the, the side and, um, tanks and everything, but he was still giving, giving it a 50, 50. And he was hoping that it would not destroy the, the launch pad. That's what he hmm. was hoping. So how, how uh, many, yeah. how many, how many Raptor engines are on this stack on the bottom? Is it 28? I think I read 28. If it's 28, right. will that be the most amount of rocket engines ever fly, ever, ever flown on a first stage? Well, you had the, the N1, right? How many engines on the N1? And how did that go? <laughs> had 30 and K15. And the N1, there was a launch attempt, right? Mm -hmm. And so far, we're waiting for a launch attempt. But yeah. we have to be realistic. You can claim tallest, most powerful ever flown after it flies, yeah, not before. Yeah, I mean, and it's just very exciting yeah. and we can wait, but just measure your words, hope for the best, but also account yeah. for the worst. Well, I mean, if we're going by the N1, we're talking about the nation that knew most about rocketry at the time, really successful, and they launched it four times and it failed four times. So it's like yeah, it's, a, it's a very tricky it's a very tricky thing to do. Time has but, times yeah, have changed, changed in, yeah. in especially in electronics and avionics. We yeah. have gone light years ahead. Okay, maybe maybe the the, the hardware itself, you know, the rocket engines and the rocket equation, you know, that does not mm. change, but the avionics do. And trying to control this number of rockets, uh, the, the rocket engines in the in the seventies. 60s yeah. and 70s compared to compared to 2020s we have come a long way in terms of computer power yeah i mean yeah the n1 is almost a miracle that it i mean it flew quite well on a couple of the launches actually but mm -hmm. but yeah i mean yeah we, well basically it's going to if if they actually get a chance to try this thing out soon it's going to be very exciting anyway julio shall we shall we um listen to the interview and, uh, I, I, yeah. I love this interview, by the way. It's 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 it's, it's another one that we try to we want to keep our interview short, but it, we I'm, yeah. I'm it, mesmerized. I don't want to stop it when I'm no. To we, we had him for about we had him for about half an hour longer than we should have done, but he was just so willing to talk to us. He and, and he seemed to living enjoy himself history. as well. Yeah, he living was living history. He was literally living history. I mean, is, amazing. Yeah. So Ecoute. the interplanetary podcast, putting the. Back into space. We are joined on the podcast. I'm really, really lucky to have him on. Is Bob Seek? Welcome to the podcast, Bob. Good to be here. It, it has to be said, looking at your resume, I, I don't really know where to start. So I think if I can ask you to just start right from the beginning, which is when you when you were a little kid, did you think that you would have anything to do with space? And if not, how, how did you end up? And where did you end up first, like dealing with space stuff? Probably a combination of things. I liked airplanes as a little kid, and and going through high school, I uh, I I I got interested in technology at the time, and that was in the fifties, by the way, and and I was an amateur radio operator, that, and and that piqued my interest in electrical stuff, and I flew. Um, model airplanes, uh, the little gasoline engine thing. So I said, okay, I'm, if, if 
uh, given that I graduate and move on and, and become an adult, I'm going to fly airplanes and probably for the Air Force because dad had been career military uh, and uh, and was and flew in, in Navy aviation during World War Two and and uh, and subsequently the Air Force. So so I said, OK, I'm going to I'm going to be a, a pilot someday. But I'm really interested in engineering technology at the time, which at the time a chip was still something you carved off a block of wood. <laughs> so really. So I, I took electrical engineering in college. And while I was in college, the Russians launched Sputnik. And and that really got my interest. And at the same time, my parents moved down to Florida on the East Coast. Uh, where they were trying to launch rockets, sometimes successfully. And so I, I kind of said, well, okay, if when I graduate from college, I'm going to get involved in this missile and rocket business and hopefully live in this paradise of Central Florida close to the ocean and, uh, and enjoy a career at the Cape, so to speak. So after after I graduated with my degree in electrical engineering, there was no computer engineering at the time. There was no aerospace engineering. It was just electrical, basic electrics. I uh, went on active duty in the Air Force for a few years in meteorology and supporting missile and aircraft operations. And uh, and and that was interesting because it, I took courses in meteorology and atmospheric physics. So I de I developed an affinity for for uh, environmental and and ocean related science as well as uh, interest in the space program. So after I served my active duty time, I uh, I I went off in uh, to a career with NASA starting in the early '60s and was privileged to be part of the, f the first manned spaceflight program that had two, two astronauts in it, the Gemini program. And I started there with Gemini 3, the first manned Gemini mission. And, and I, I was responsible for the medical instrumentation that the astronauts wore. And, and not for the quality of the health of the astronaut, mind you, but that's, that was the flight surgeons. But my responsibility was to get the signal from the astronaut's body through this crude telemetry system in the spacecraft and transmitted down to uh, the blockhouse and mission control during the mission. So it was a lot of fun. Got to learn, meet all the, the early astronauts and learn something about medical science and how technology could enhance uh, that field and presenting data to doctors that can make informed decisions. So that that was that was a good way to start, and I did that during Gemini. And and as things go, uh, I progressed up to be a launch team specialist for the Apollo program, like an engineering test conductor for all the tests we ran on the uh, on the spacecraft specifically. And then at the end of Apollo, moved on to the shuttle program. I was responsible for all the procedures as an engineering manager for, uh, for, for all of the tests that we ran at the Cape to prepare the shuttle for launch. And that led to being launch director for a number of missions and uh, finally retired as uh, 
you know how it works. You, you gradually work your way up until you've, it's a job that's not really any fun. I think they call that the Peter Principle. So I, so when I retired after a long career, 35, going on 40 years, as a director of shuttle processing at the Kennedy Space Center, where I was responsible for the government and contractor workforce and the budgets and contracts and all that stuff, you know, which is, yeah. Stuff. All the yeah, fun stuff. All, yeah, yeah, the not so fun stuff. But the, but since then, I've stayed connected. And that was about twenty years ago when I retired. I've stayed connected with the people in the business through various panels that the government or NASA or private industry has assigned me to. So I'm, I didn't totally disconnect the headset, so to speak, when I left. Uh, well, I mean, I, that's an extraordinary story. You, I mean. You, ha- it, it almost seems like your career spans the entire first stage of space exploration because it seems like we're going into a different era now. But you're, you're, you, you've completely sp- you completely spanned that first era, haven't you? Well, it does, it does, and and the new stuff is just as exciting as the the old stuff. It's it's more difficult for for a number of reasons, but. Uh, you know, in the early on in the program, we enjoyed in space business as a program. We we enjoyed what I call wartime rules. There was a lot of empowerment. Even as a journeyman engineer, you were allowed to do things that now you had to have a a large office with a big desk and carpet on the floor to make those kind of decisions. <laughs> really, yeah. There was a lot of, and I call that wartime rules. There was unlimited funds, unlimited support from the public and the administrations we had. So, and and we hadn't had much experience as journeyman engineers. So our 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 direction was, we'll go figure it out. And yeah, there may be mistakes, uh, but. That's all right. We're going to the moon. It's a it's a national mission. So whatever you need to get us there, young man, you, you know, go do it. I always wonder about those those times, especially the Gemini times. Uh, when I think of of developments today, and you think of the stacks of paperwork you have to do before a modification even takes place, <laughs> and I could imagine how was it in Gemini. Well, it was uh, as as I said, there was unlimited resources and um it and for example so the the system i was responsible for at that time and and you're too young you wouldn't remember if you wanted an electrocardiogram it it, it took hours to get wired up at a doctor's office with <laughs> with yeah with all these sensors and leads and a recorder that was throwing ink around and the and the, the doctor would look at that and say yeah well you got a little bit of arrhythmia here or a little bit of afib or whatever um, but that's all we had so us journeyman engineers were told well okay that technology didn't exist at the time you get with the medical industry and figure out a way to get these signals from the astronaut's body without using all the wires and equipment so we can see what happens to them when they're up there in space. And whatever it takes to do that, young man, go do it. And we made a lot of mistakes, spent a lot of money doing it, but we figured it out. And in fact, just as a trivia item, today when you go into a hospital and you see a nurse, monitoring a half a dozen patients remotely. Well, you can thank our nation's space program for that. The medical community would have eventually 
figured it out, right? But the forcing function that brought that technology to fruition as early as it did in the 60s was we had to figure out a way to do it now. So get on with it, whatever you need in the way of resources, young man, you, you go figure it out. And uh, we did. There's no telling how many people are alive today because that technology was brought to fruition as early as it was. So, that, I mean, that's a really interesting point, isn't it? That, that, that there's like a sort of two different ways of cracking a problem. And, and, you're, and, and one of them is just saying, right, just forget about the resources, just go and solve it. Whereas yeah. o- other ways takes much longer. And, and you think, well, is, is one way actually cheaper than the other way when, when you really take the long picture? Sure. And it's, it's a, well, and an, another factor going for us, I'll, I'll put it that way, in the 60s was my perception as a guy getting old and probably cynical is we were less risk adverse as a society than we are today. We, we, are, we were. And uh, if it took more money, if there were casualties, so to speak, along the way, we were willing to accept that risk. Well, now our society is not so much that way. And, uh, and that certainly helped. I have the impression that at least we have started to recognize this sort of excess risk aversement these days, at least with the development of Starship. You can see the frequent testing, frequent failed tests right. in order to improve. Do you think we're going back to something more reasonable that is extreme risk averse, that approach that we had? I'd, I'd like to think so. If people would just accept the fact that, that, that testing... You, you do a test to find out where your your problem areas and your weak areas are, and it's okay if the test ends up with a well. Okay, yeah, that, it, we still got more work to do. It's it's part of the it's part of the process, and and I think over time we we got away from that. We're not willing to accept the risk. That people like Elon Musk and SpaceX and Bezos and others are willing to accept the risk. Uh, and and they can better do that as as private privately owned companies as opposed to the government being in charge and doing all the funding and and that sort of thing. It's a uh, and and that's why the commercial transportation commercial crew program concept is is proving itself out to be. An, an effective way to do business. That doesn't mean that the that the, the government hasn't hasn't helped them along the way with funding. Obviously, obviously they have, um, but uh, but I think it's an improvement in the way we're, we're willing to do things that that aren't easy to do and and are going to have those kind of problems as you develop your system. Indeed, but when you go back to the early days, as you mentioned. The, the government was willing to take more risks. I assume the main reason was the, as you said, the wartime rules in a way. Yeah, it was, uh, it's absolutely. And, and interestingly, you know, most of us that worked in the space program in the, uh, in the 60s had been, um, spent some time in the military. So we knew about the concept of responsibility and accountability and uh, and I remember when when I got one of my early briefings, 
as a NASA employee, the, the, the older fellow given the briefing said, you know, most of you guys, we were all guys back then, right? Because <laughs> girls didn't go to engineering school. And, uh, but he said, you guys look at it this way. He said, you know, you're, used, you're, you're in, you're, this program is funded by the taxpayer, 100%. Um, and we're training you uh, to, to do this job for the government, for our country. So the way, the way to look at it is, it's the same as if you were in the military where you had spent time and many of us were still in the reserves, we could end up wearing a uniform again. So, but it's the same as if you were in the military, uh, but you're not wearing a uniform. You are a, a national asset on a government mission. The government has deemed that we're going to land a man on a moon and bring him back in the next decade. The government is funding that. The taxpayer is funding it. So you're an agent of the taxpayers, just like you were in the military. You're just not wearing a uniform. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really hard for me, obviously, because I didn't grow up in the in in the in the states, or certainly not in that era. Was there a real tangible feeling that it was the states versus? The Soviet Union. Was that really such a draw? Because you see that portrayed in films and TV programs nowadays. But was that was that genuinely the, the kind of feel of it at the time? Well, for us, for us engineers, no. It was all about the engineers like to work on technical problems, challenges. You know, we it's 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 boring for an engineer if you run the procedure and, and everything goes rickety tick. You know. We like to work problems. So for us, we were focused daily and we had many problems to solve, obviously, as if there was, yes, there was this subtle thing about schedule pressure and that was, that was there. But all, for us, it was all about getting this done and get it done right because, because what was also ever present was the, the concept that this is human spaceflight. You know, we're putting astronauts on top of the rocket and in the spacecraft. So, yeah, you engineers and, and you managers, you're responsible for these systems on the ground and, and flight system. But don't lose sight of the fact that the number one priority uh, customer is those astronauts. And the mission is all about them getting to the moon and back safely. Don't lose sight of that. That's what it's really all about. So, so it was, yeah. So, so what was going on? All the hype and the, you know, how are we doing versus the Russians? That was kind of, we knew it was there, but we put that, put that aside, really. I want to go right, right back to the, to, to the beginning where you said, where, where you joined NASA. Was that, was that, from an advert or did you or did you see an opening and thought I really want to work for NASA or or did you actually ever have dreams of becoming an astronaut the no it wasn't the astronaut thing it was it was more of um uh, I worked for a contractor for a few months after I went off active duty but the um but it was obvious then that well the contractor works for the government. NASA's running this program. NASA has makes all of the major decisions. So, and NASA and they advertised in paper. You know, this is back in the in the early '60s, where if 
if, if you were a guy with an engineering degree, you didn't, you didn't have to spend a lot of time looking for a, a job offer. Uh, they were there. And, uh, so it was, it was an easy transition for me. Yeah. I, I, and it, and it wasn't, and NASA was new. So I, I was familiar with the government because I'd been in the air force. So, so there was no uncertainties. The, uh, the only uncertainty came <clears throat> at the end of the Apollo program where right near the end of it, where we weren't sure what our future was in, uh, in space. They were still debating what came after Apollo in uh, Congress. And they, they had already decided that the Apollo program was going to end essentially a year earlier. They cut off the last three missions. So we were kind of, okay, us NASA folks were, you know, what's next? We, we enjoyed Apollo and Gemini in my case so much, you know, we'd like to keep this, this, this going, keep the momentum going. And uh, it was for, for a year or so there, it was kind of, there was a lot of trepidation is what the future would be. Yeah. Was it exciting though? Because you, you uh, presumably, um, obviously, the work hadn't ended on something like the Saturn V or, <laughs> or the vehicles involved with it. I, I'm assuming that that was a continual process of of making them better and 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 looking at faults that had happened before. But was it exciting to to that when Apollo was finished that you had like this this new well what turned out to be the space shuttle, I suppose. Was was that exciting as an engineer? Because it it's because that feels like a, a massive technological leap from one to the other. Well, it, it it was, and from that aspect, it was exciting. When we were the the Apollo, just as a reference back to Apollo, there we didn't we had computers then, obviously crude by today's standards, and and um, and and here comes shuttle, and it's a. Uh, it, it involves technology that we hadn't been trained with. We had no experience on. We didn't learn about it in school. Think about it. I'm go- going back to the 50s when most of us got our engineering degrees, again, in the 50s, particularly for electronics, if you want. Electronics didn't exist. A transistor had just been invented when I graduated from college. Mm. So computers, chips solid state devices, this sort of thing. No, no. Most of us had to go back to school after Apollo, and we had this gap before we got the shuttle hardware going, to learn what computers and technology had transpired while we were too busy working, putting people on the moon and getting them back. We did. Hmm. We had to learn. And uh, so that was exciting. And, and, And here comes this highly complex vehicle called the shuttle orbiter that had thousands, thousands of components that opened or closed or latched or unlatched or turned off and on, as opposed to a few hundred in the, in the Apollo spacecraft. And, and, and it was, it was exciting, but it was also not an easy road, so to speak, to get accustomed to computers and write the software and make sure that all that meshed with this very complex vehicle called the shuttle. I, I could imagine that when you have this sort of tenfold increase in complexity, you have to rework how you conduct your tests and on all the decision points, I would assume. Yeah, and, and we tried to 
to get our stuff together, our ground equipment and our software and our procedures based on the technical data that was available from the shuttles, which were still being built. And so we built simulators to test the software and the hardware against. But when the actual hardware and software with the flight components started arriving, we found out that we didn't get it all right <laughs> in our preparation. <laughs> and, and that's why from the time we received the shuttle orbiter until we launched it for the first shuttle mission, it was a good two years. Uh, Columbia was specifically the orbiter at the time, but yeah, it was, a. Uh, and it was it was a busy time, but again, engineers love these kind of challenges. I mean, talk about risk averse. I would consider STS one, and I don't know if you would agree with this, as the riskiest space flight ever. That just seems when when I when I when I read about it, I I think that that just seems nuts that they had two people, you know, <laughs> flying that space shuttle. <laughs> and it seems like a very dangerous mission. Did it, did it feel that dangerous at the time? And, and, and was it exciting? Was it, what, what were your feelings around that period? Well, yes. And it, and it, and it looked to us, those of us, of course, again, you know, previous human space flight certifications of us, rocket and a spacecraft system, you did a number of unmanned tests and you usually found problems in those unmanned, unmanned tests before you committed to put astronauts on on the pointy end of the rocket. So so this was to me was was a big leap of faith. Now as far as the astronauts being able to survive it on STS one, they had they were pilots they'd flown in high performance aircraft with ejection seats so i said well okay if if things go to you know what below them they they've got a chance to get off of it i think what so so their probability of surviving to me it was pretty good but but what us engineers worried about was did the other engineers that developed the system did they get it right on the drawing board you know, think about the, the structural dynamics and, and that sort of thing. Will this thing hold together for that ride, that ascent ride into space or coming back home? Did, did all those structural engineers and all the testing that they did, most of it was analysis, said, yeah, well, we can make this this strong, make it out of titanium versus stainless. We'll put three segments in the solid rocket booster as opposed to just one or whatever. But that's all drawing board and test type of stuff until you put it all together and actually launch it. So I think we were probably more concerned whether this thing was really going to fly than whether Crip or John Young are going to get back home okay. Really. Wow. Oh, you know, you mentioned the the gap between Apollo and, and the shuttle and the certain uncertainty around that time. I have been just by chance reading about that that same era recently and and there were several possible configurations of for the design of the shuttle uh, they were discussing because of funding the initial idea was to have the shuttle and the space station at the same time there was even the, there was even discussions of a sort of nuclear um, engine for propulsion um, what were you Personally, during that time, what was your what were your hopes after Apollo? If, if you could have been the one choosing, 
what what was your your mind? What did what did you, did you want to go directly to Mars, for instance, or what was your personal preference? I wanted to go deeper into space, the, the for to see to learn more about what's out there, and maybe and in so doing, learn more about us and the future of our planet. Uh, I I think fine having a system that'll continue to put people in low earth orbit that'll that helps that to some degree uh we learned a lot about us down here on earth from 250 to 300 miles up there and and that's good but i wanted to go further out you know i'm one of these that believe we're we're not alone in this huge universe <laughs> there's 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 other planets out there that that have atmosphere and i don't know what form of life they have but but it's more than just us on this rock called Earth. So let's go find out more about us and what else is out there. But you got to go further out there than than we got. Hubble helped, obviously. And we've got the James Webb telescope coming that'll look further out. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but but that was my my ultimate hope. Uh, as opposed to not that there's anything routine about spaceflight, but just turning the crank, so to speak, and and keeping astronauts in uh, in Earth orbit, which is good. And again, the more research we do up there, the better chance we have of improving the longevity of our planet. But I did then, and still want to go further out. When 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 you say go further out, um, are you? Where do you sit on this, where we should be spending the money? Because th- there's obviously a- an argument between human exploration and, and robotic exploration. And it, and for me, I always think, well, robo- robotic exploration is clearly way more <laughs> cost-effective as a way of going out, like you say, into into deeper space and, and, and finding out more about, weirdly, finding out more about humans and, and, and our place in the universe. So wh- where do you, where do you sit with that, with that? With that, do you do you follow the robotic missions as much as the human spaceflight stuff? Is where, where does your loyalty lie with that with that with that element? Well, well, my I think it's a I, I think they have to complement one another. I um, the 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 robotic missions should be for a number of reasons, used to develop the technology to get out there and, and bring things back, and, and they're necessary. But I still believe that you can only do so much with with human-made computers and robotics. I, I still consider, not for me individually, but the best computer, particularly a computer that can do its own reasoning and discrimination is the one between people's ears, really. And, and in fact, I go back to Apollo, and, and there was a debate, as engineers do, how much computerization automation are we going to put in the spacecraft uh, that we're going to send to the, the, the guys to the moon and bring them back? And, and ultimately, if you look at what we did with onboard computers back then, we used them to take 
data. Again, this is my view of it. We took data and turned it into information and gave that information to the flight crew and the flight team, and they made the decision using this computer as to what would happen next, as opposed to thinking we're smart enough to put it all in this little black box and let it do its thing, so to speak. Well, I, I look at it the same way for space exploration in the future. This is still the best discriminator. And, and one of my favorite overused phrases when I talk to kids who have all these tremendous electronics that I don't know how to use, right? I, I tell them, that, and that's all good, and you can get data out of that, but there's a difference between data and information. So don't forget how to Google your brain. Yeah. Really. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I, I there, there's a, there's a, I, I know that you uh, obviously were, were were part of the commission that Richard Feynman was uh, involved with. And uh, there's a, there's a section in his book that, that always makes me laugh a little bit about the space shuttle having this ability for the, the pilots end up uh, doing the, dropping the landing gear for no reason other than it was something for them to do. <laughs> and, I mean, well, well, it was a, it was a, it was something for them to do, but, but it was also at the time that decision was made, early 70s, computers were still emerging. And I remember the discussion and the design review that, that, that it was a trade-off, just to, not to bore you with the details of that, but, but they, um, the discussion, the orbiter was always challenged with weight and the performance of the rocket that would take it up there. So anything you could do to save weight on the orbiter was a good thing for the designers. And um, so the designers in the design of the landing gear said, well, we can save you this many pounds of weight if you don't give the crew the ability to retract the landing gear. If it and so an astronaut who uh, whose name I won't use, but he's a famous one, said, well, so lead me through this. So we're on orbit and and we got this computer complex it's, and, and you, you're going to have your version of safeguards in there. But is there any chance that some computer glitch could deploy the landing gear and since we're not going to have the ability to retract them, we're, we're not going to get home safely. Stuck in orbit. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and of course you can imagine discussion. Well, we you can't guarantee anything, but obviously, you know, there's safeguards here, 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 whatever. And so again, the decision was made, well, okay. So, so th there'll be a backup ability for a computer to, uh, uh, automatically deploy the landing gear, but only if an astronaut selects that ability. Otherwise, the crew is going to deploy the landing gear. And, uh, and it, that's the way it ended up. So it was this, this, eh, this well, that's, automation is fine, but, but it's, uh, we're not going to let it do everything. 
Oh, that's and maybe that and if, and today maybe that discussion would go differently, but it was a fairly short discussion back in the in the early seventies. That's really interesting to hear the other side of that little anecdote <laughs> because 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 <laughs> in, in the book it, it it does seem ridiculous, but now you say it like that, it it, it does it it's less so. Obviously, it, it's it's really interesting. It definitely it, <laughs> it definitely wasn't boring us with the details. It's quite the opposite. <laughs> no. Yeah, you were there for from the very first uh, shuttle launch up to yeah. which mission? To um, the the uh, last one in '98, which I believe was the one that John Glenn flew on in December of. Uh, or in the, in, in the winter of uh, 98, and I, and I retired in early 99. Oh, wow, so you did the so, first... So that was STS, <laughs> STS whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah. Too many to count, too many to count. Yeah. So over all these different shuttle launches, for me, one of my biggest regrets is have never have, having never seen a shuttle launch. I was given <laughs> an opportunity for the last one, I just didn't have the money to to, to get there, um, and yeah, maybe, maybe if you can describe it from your point of view, how it was it uh, to see that that beast and during those years, and I'm sure you had some more. Probably all your launches were your favorites, but I'm sure you had one yeah. some more favorites than others. So while I was working there before I retired. It, you're so focused on, again, the old engineer here. You're so focused on the data, the information from the critical systems, how the engines are, are, are their performance is, and the, and the other systems. And, of course, you, you're looking at a screen. Well, in my case, you're looking out the window because the launch pad is right there at launch, but then you've got it. You got these television monitors that are showing various aspects of the, the launch pad, and, and and then you've got all this data on another screen. So the engineer, consummate engineer, is looking at all of that as the shuttle is going up. And yeah, you get the rumble and the roar and and that sort of thing. But the, it it was a emotional event for me to watch one from outside with the group of spectators at the first time, for the first time. It really was. I didn't realize I was that much wrapped up in, in the emotion of it as when I was watching as a spectator with no responsibilities other than to, uh, to with no responsibilities as far as the performance of the shuttle was with a group of people that are cheering, hurrahing, high-fiving, crying, all the above. It, I had never witnessed that before for a shuttle launch. So it was, it was an emotional, meaningful event for me to watch it as a spectator. Was that during, the, during each of these programs, did you have like a favorite moment, say in the Gemini program or the Apollo program or the space shuttle program? Did you, what, what were your sort of favorite moments during those programs? Yeah, it's, it's hard to put one above the other for Gemini. It was the first time I was on the launch team in the blockhouse and gave a go for launch 
for the medical instrumentation. So I'm sitting at a console. I've got a flight surgeon on each side of me. I'm responsible for the data, for them getting the data. Of course, they're responsible to say, you know, what the health of the astronaut is. But, and, and I'm worried that something will go wrong with the instrumentation system and I'll have to raise the flag that, well, biomed is no go. Now the flight surgeons can overrule that and say, well, we don't need the data, but chances are they're going to say, no, we got to, we got to stand down and, and fix this. We got to, we have, we're getting no information at all from the pilot, Wally Sherall or Gus Grissom or whatever. We, we, we got to go fix this. And, and, and I was concerned that my system would be the one to hold up the launch. And at that time, let's see, that's 196. So I'm, I'm all of, 26 years old, still a newbie and really don't know a whole lot, you know, a lot of responsibility. And, and it's, so, so I remember that another one in Gemini, I, re, I recall we had only once did we have the astronauts on the vehicle and the engines shut down prematurely before launch. And, uh, so everybody's listening to the, well, it's what's happening out there. Do we have a fire or this sort of thing? And, and of course, I'm watching the, the parameters of the astronauts, and 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 they're they're cool, by the way. For the most part, all of them were. Their heart rates were maybe running 80 to 100. Mine is about 150 because I'm worried that my system is going to fail, you know. And um, and so then I, then I noticed their heart rate started increasing, and I'm listening to the net to see if there's something going wrong out there There's nothing there and i asked the surgeon i said well what's going on here with in this case wally and tom yeah with their heart rates and he's and he quickly responded he said oh they're mad he used a different term by the way he said, they're mad they just realized they're not going anywhere today in fact there's no telling how long it'll be before they shoot out the end the engine problem and and that's what happens when you get mad <laughs> to your body functions yeah Definitely remember that. The first Apollo launch that I watched from outside was actually Apollo 11. And, and that was memorable. I was working on Apollo 12 at the time. So they told all of us that were not directly associated with the launch, stay home. There was such a gridlock of, of visitors into that area of Florida. You couldn't move. In fact, they set up ways for the members of the launch team to go to various airports and or parking lots and get helicopter rides into to their work area for launch day. So we were told to um, stay home. I said, well, good. I'm going to go watch my first Saturn V manned Apollo mission here because all the rest of them I'd been in the blockhouse or in the control room, actually. And the only visibility I had was my little eight inch black and white TV set. Of course, I had all the data, but that was, I couldn't wait to get home to watch launch replays on my 18 inch black and white <laughs> TV set. <laughs> so I said, I'm going to get to see the launch. So we only lived about a, uh, a mile or so from the river, Indian River in this in this town, which in across the river, just a little over five miles away 
is the launch pad, perfect view of the pad with the Saturn V sitting on it. So this little town of population 50,000 was probably 250,000 on launch day. I only got about halfway to the river and had to park the car. And my wife and I walked the rest of the way with the, my one-year-old in the stroller. By the time we got to to the river and did some of this working our way through the crowd. It was just a few minutes before launch. And we noted this woman was pulling up a plug of grass out of the side of the road and putting it in a Ziploc bag. And either my wife or I asked her, you know, well, where are you from? You know, and whatever and we got around to saying, well, what are you doing? And she said, well, I've all of the, Trinket and memorabilia vendors that are lined up here along the road, they have nothing left for sale. I can't get a, a patch, a decal, <laughs> a, uh, a T-shirt, a baseball cap. There's nothing left. So that, but I came here from, well, I forget where she was, said, and I got to have a souvenir this moment. So this is it, a plug of grass in a Ziploc bag. And, uh, and of course, when the launch occurred, there was – there was just euphoria, horns honking, people cheering and whatever. And yeah, that was that was my favorite Apollo launch. Had to be. I had one regret from it. I, with those thousands of people there and the fact that you couldn't buy anything that associated with the launch, I was thinking, you know, sitting on my desk out at the Cape is the launch countdown test procedure which has got a couple thousand pages in it. If I was smart, I could have worked this crowd, you know, say, hey, I'm an engineer on the launch team or whatever. This is a page of the actual countdown procedure. How much? <laughs> I could have sent one of my kids for to college for maybe a month or two for what I would earn. But anyway, a story. That's a, That's but it's still my favorite, still my favorite launch. And of course, for shuttle, probably... As the first shuttle launch was, because I was in charge of the procedures, so I was in the, in the control room. We were told to hold our emotions by the launch director at the time that, um, just, you know, remember, engineers, it's not over till it's over. They got to get safely on orbit and, uh, and someday get back home. But once they're on orbit, then you pull out. We were each given a flag and pull out the flags and do your high fives and hugs <laughs> and, and this sort of thing. But, but when it launched the first attempt that we scrubbed because of a computer glitch, not surprising. Right. And, and so when it actually launched, there was this brief hurrah in the control room. And then we all shut up. We remembered our training discipline from the launch director so we were quiet, and then two minutes later, the solid rocket boosters cut off, and there was another hurrah, and then, no, no, not yet, you know, <laughs> hush up. <laughs> there was another one when the engines cut off, ah, not, 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 not yet, they're, they're still not in orbit, and then when the tank separated and they fired the maneuvering engines, and then the launch director stood up and said, okay, you know, go to it, gang. <laughs> yeah. That was that was a that was probably one of the two favorites. The other one for shuttle was return to flight after Challenger. I had been launch director for a couple of years prior to Challenger, but not for the Challenger X. I had then transitioned to the management job at the time of Challenger, 
And during the downtime at the Challenger, after the Challenger tragedy, I successfully lobbied to go back to being launch director, which I felt was my strongest suit, what I could contribute the most to return to flight. And thankfully, my bosses further up the organization chart agreed. So I went back to being launch director for return to flight. And uh, and that went well, obviously. So so that was satisfying to help rebuild the team and get the confidence going again that we we, we can do this again in spite of the tragedy. Was there, yeah. was there a massive change in the way that business was done at uh after challenger in, in terms the, of the yeah i think culture the, the it, culture wise it's um i think it's 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 mixed the the hands-on workers in my perception never took for granted the importance of their work and the fact that it had to be done well. So, so there was this indictment, as it were, of NASA and the contractors in general. Uh, I don't think that's fair, particularly because the hands-on workers never considered what they did just a job. Again, and and I knew a number of them and knew them personally, and no, that was to them it was a, a you bet your butt business that they were in. It wasn't just a punch in and punch out job. There was the, the culture change from management, I think was, was more so, uh, and, and more needed as opposed to in the past, it was, well, we didn't have a problem this on the last flight, so it should be okay. We think our procedures are mature. We'd had 25 missions, prior to that and our criteria for saying this vehicle is really ready to go seemed to assure that we we didn't launch something that shouldn't be launched. So I think there was complacency there and that needed to turn around. That culture did. And and it also became there was the overreactive part where we now brought in more oversight, which to me fuzzed the responsibility that we'd enjoyed say, Hey, you're responsible. If you're, if you don't like this, you, you, you raise your hand, whether you're a boss or a journeyman engineer or whatever, or technician, whatever your job is, you're empowered with this. If you get it wrong, bad things will happen. Now, if you've got so many people sharing the responsibility for the same task or same decision to me, that fuzzes the responsibility and that that to me is overreaction and and counterproductive yeah because you don't want the you don't want the engineer to sort of look up and say well you signed it off <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah yeah you yeah. signed it too so yeah yeah no, you don't want that no yeah so that's a yeah it's a that's a strange strange thing when that creeps <laughs> in because you would have thought is that is that something that remained at nasa or is that something that people also spotted and thought there's there's too much oversight and 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 too much too much of that well i oh. think i think it 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 is i think it's one of the reasons that um the, the nasa run space launch system is not yet ready to go, even though it uses technology from the shuttle era. And in the meantime, the uh, the SpaceX and and the others 
are using the commercial concept, which is limited oversight, uh, let the contractor make some mistakes. But as we get closer to flying, as they got closer to flying NASA astronauts, there was more oversight, but not to the same degree there is in the space launch system. So I, to me, that's, that is an example of the, the amount of extra oversight. That's what you pay for that. It costs more and it takes more time. Uh, is it, does it result in a safer mission? Well, to be determined. Yeah. I mean, it, are, are there engineers that love to, to, to find out about stuff by blowing it up rather than the en- the other engineers that yeah. sit there going through their equations going, this has got to be right, and simulations. Surely m- most engineers are the type that want to go blow stuff up to find out about it. <laughs> it's a, well, I don't think it's – I think the uh, there's a difference between accepting a risk and gambling, hmm. okay, and you accept the risk. You say, well, okay, I've got this known unknown here. I know this can happen. I What limited data and analysis I can do says it, it should work okay, but there's still some unknowns in that that could change that, that number or that degree of confidence. Uh, so I got to expect that this might happen type of thing as opposed to, well, it's, I know this, these things, there's, these things could go wrong and other things can go wrong. I haven't, but I haven't accessed the risk, but it'll probably be okay. So let's go fly. Mm. That's gambling. Yeah. (laughs) That's gambling. There's a difference. But, but presumably the, the, the engineer, you know, the engineers who are say working on Starship aren't gambling. They're, they're doing what you're saying that, that, that element of we just here's something that we're not quite sure what the what the error bars are let's go out let's go and let's go and check it out yeah and and rather than try to beef it up or increase the factor of safety let's go test it Mm. and see if it if it does work and we'll get the data from that and see what our margins are and 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 that and then determine whether that's the design we'll go fly with, or we got to do more work on. Do you think the, they're willing to accept it? Do you think the time where, when it comes that they want to get some a system like that certified for human spaceflight, that's when they're going to come up against this this we, the way we started this culture of safety. Therefore, they're going to come up against that that different way of working at that point. Because at the moment, well, I think. Yeah, I I think the short answer is yes, but how much of a uh, resistance or pushback there'll be, uh, I think it's it'll a big factor, and that'll be be how well they uh, they did in their prior testing, and uh, if and and again the number of successful processes and flights that they were able to repeat and demonstrate will be a big factor in that. Uh, An an example, and this hopefully is not too technical, but uh, SpaceX was the, is their concept for human space flight launch pad operations is to put the crew on board and then tank the vehicle unheard of in previous human 
space flights. But you you look at their the repeatability of their ability to safely tank the vehicle in a short amount of time uh, and and their visibility into catching leaks if they occur and and safety procedures have well been demonstrated. So the program got comfortable with that. Initially, the program pushed back and said, you know, what do you mean you're going to you're going to flow, yeah. <laughs> flow. Look, you know your fuel and your and your oxygen in the in the vehicle at the same time at these high flow rates or whatever. We've never done that before. Well, you look at the history of the shuttle program and compare it and say, well, gee whiz! But look what we did in shuttle. We've got we loaded this tank with half a million gallons of liquid hydrogen oxygen, and we put the crew out there for hours to ingress them. And we had a closeout crew that was out there. They, the astronauts have to accept some risk to fly, but because of the design of the shuttle, we had to have this extra crew out there to help them get in. And here's this again, tank that's full of all this. And it's being replenished, oh, by the way, at hundreds of gallons a minute of liquid hydrogen and oxygen simultaneously, which, which is more safe. Look at the hazardous exposure, and that causes, ah, okay, that's something to consider here, yeah. And anyway, to make a long story short, the, the flight crew and NASA eventually got comfortable with that. And, and, and again, it's, it's repeated its, its, its accuracy, we'll call it, or performance repeatedly. And they did it at a number of times before they committed the crew to to actually do it on the first crewed mission. So I think we'll come around to that. Mm. I think, I hope, yeah. yeah that's you, you mentioned that uh, while you're retired, you stay active, and <laughs> you mentioned all of these decisions <laughs> here. So are you sometimes consulting to, for them, or you just I, something you hear at the, yes. at the shop? Well, yes. Short answer again, yes. But but most of that I've... I've been on up until last year, some NASA sponsored panel review board working group or whatever. It initially started out with the aerospace safety advisory panel, then then the Columbia return to flight task group, then a space station safety panel, then the constellation program uh, review board, then uh, the uh, NASA advisory council. And uh, in the meantime, I did some various work for contractors. Now, I'm not on any NASA-sponsored panel, but I am on a SpaceX safety advisory panel with a couple other retired astronauts. And, and uh, yeah, so I still stay connected with the people in the business. So a few months ago, we interviewed Dave Concanon um, about the, 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 the recovery of the F1 engines. Right. He mentioned your name. He mentioned that you helped yes. him. And yeah. I was wondering, what are your recollections of that? And I mean, what role do you played in it? Not a lot. I helped him connect with some people in NASA and, uh, and the contractor, actually, that were part of the, uh, the program and specifically the F1 engines. And, and, and fortunately, in one case... Uh, locally, there's a fellow that I worked with for years, Lee Salad, who was 
a uh, in charge of the second stage Saturn and the F1 engine development. And a uh, longtime friend lives in the area. So he actually uh, spent a lot of time with Dave and whoever uh, the Bezos had on his team, um, mainly from the standpoint of uh, identifying the engines that were in that debris field that is, is out is hundreds of miles downrange from the, uh, the Cape and which engines to uh, look for, but mainly, and some, some of the people that were in flight planning in Houston, but personally, other than, than getting that contact for, for Dave, getting those people together, uh, uh, other than a few opinions, I occasionally gave them on, <laughs> on, the, on, on the way the, the work went you know, down here and, and who to approach and, 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 and who not to, um, that was just about my participation. Yeah. But I'm glad I'm, I was, I, I cheered him on in his endeavor to, uh, uh, to do what he did. And I, I'm sure he, in fact, I'd like to, if his story, I never spent a lot of time with Dave about his story of working with his boss. <laughs> it must have been uh, an interesting time for him. I don't know what it would like to be like to work for a, a billionaire who's always right in terms of, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> Dave mentioned that uh, you guys were in, uh, that you and other retirees from all these space programs had some sort of breakfast club together that you gathered often and oh, i yes. just wonder what i would love to fly on the wall on this on, on, on those <laughs> breakfasts so they go, well well yeah old retired guys and most of us were guys back then we you know we we would we would tell our stories our war stories so to speak of uh of how things looked to us when various events occurred in the, and, and you know how it is with human nature, you, you can have three or four people observe some activity, either an instantaneous activity over a period of time, and you'll give three to four different descriptions of actually what happened, right? Well, so, so I'm a spacecraft guy, and, and as I see various events that occurred during the Apollo program or Gemini program. Well, here's how it looked to the spacecraft guy. If it was a problem with the, the launch vehicle or whatever, well, here's, here was my takeaway from it, but you were closer to it. What did you see? You know, and that may be an engineer and, 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 and then another one may be a manager. Well, what did you see? And we, we compare this and, and in some cases it, it was be like we're talking about different events, but it was the same event because we saw it so much differently from our perspective, particularly as an engineer. It's a uh, yeah, and 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 that's what old people do. And when you get old enough, you'll you'll see that's the way it goes. But again, you got you got to remember we're going back fifty some years, and it's our version of what is up here that we're that we're recounting and there's some some problematic accuracy issues with that yeah <laughs> oh, memory yeah evolves over time yeah. changes over time it, uh, and a way you, of doing that <laughs> any any particular 
finding example of these uh, situations in which you look at things from the different perspectives? Anything that any moment of enlightenment for you in particular? I I, I think for some others there was when I told them the story of um, of we that after one of our tests that we ran one of our technicians before we closed up the cabin of the spacecraft, this was Apollo 14, said he thought he saw a roach go inside the, the cabin, even though we've got this pristine environment around the crew module and whatever, but we're not allowed to use bug sprays or anything like that anywhere near the, the, the spacecraft entrance, right? So, so what ensued after that, and, and this never got to the media, until well after the mission. What ensued after that was an attempt that myself and another guy led to try to lure whatever bug it was out and get it before we actually sent the spacecraft onto the moon. And, and, and we tried all of these, these various devices, sticky paper, greasy potato chips laid, you know, laid there, put cameras on them to see, you know, what we do after we turn the lights out and whatever. Well, we never caught the thing. And, um, but, but interestingly, and, and I would tell, it was a long drawn out story that lasted for weeks. And in fact, one of the final items in the last management review was buying off this alleged discrepancy as to whether or not there was actually a foreign bug inside the spacecraft that was going to the moon <laughs> and and it never leaked out which is amazing considering at the kennedy space center at that time we got twenty thousand workers or whatever but the launch vehicle guys had never heard the story mm. never heard it it's <laughs> okay so what i'm understanding is that in the last few weeks there was a lot of talk about the the possibility of tardigrades on the moon going with Bereshit. But now you're telling me that in Apollo 14, maybe there is a roach on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> That's super interesting. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. We didn't, we didn't find it. And uh, yeah, who knows whether, but, but the technicians were, you know, they're supposed to report anything that's out of the ordinary. They said, no, I saw it. It was, it was a bug. It was, and it looked like a roach. They're, they're very common in Florida, not only in Florida, but other places. Yeah. Interesting. May have gone to the moon. May still be there. Probably roaches live forever. They probably could still be alive. It's probably really <laughs> enjoying the environment. If anything's going to live there, it's going to be a roach. Yeah. If anything could survive, yeah. What old roach kind. <laughs> what? Was, 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 was the depiction of your era of space flight in cinema and television and and if if you've got any favorites or or, or least favorites or, or or how do you feel that 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 era of space flight has been portrayed in television and and film well it's i think that the early program it was it to me when i'd watch tv and they would cover space flight and of course this is during the 60s which which was an ugly time in our in our nation and particularly the year 1968 but but it was an ugly time but i i liked the fact that the the media 
was <clears throat> occasionally there'd be that this is costing too much money or whatever, but for the most part, they were supportive of what we were doing as was the rest of the public. The, um, in the, in the shuttle program, there was this constant course that, well, this shuttle program is supposed to do everything for all of these customers, Department of Defense, commercial, as well as NASA and its research. And they're only flying a half a dozen times a year and it costs this much money. So why are we doing this and what is it? It's all very negative. And every time we would scrub a launch, <laughs> For good reason, because of safety implications, it would it was another one of those. Well, here we go again, another lost <laughs> launch opportunity cost, you know, so many million dollars in propellants and overtime and that kind of thing. So this the program is <clears throat> it's all wrong. <clears throat> NASA's doing it all wrong. And then right after Challenger, then they there would be these articles that see, well, see, NASA was too trying too hard to meet the launch rate goals of the advertising brochure of the program. Totally mismanaged, totally da 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 It was a bad time after Challenger, but it's a, and that's typical of media though. And it's, it's, it's typical of the current program, e e even with, we're doing all this development. There's when, when something happens, and there's loss of human life. It's categorized as a tragedy. There's the shock and the grief phase that the media portrays. Then there's the what, what went wrong. Technically, you know, how did this come down? What, what was the root cause? Then, regrettably, you have to go through the who's to blame. And then, then there will be some follow on limited as it may be on oh here's what we're doing to get back to normal again type of thing but that's typical to me of the media's approach to a tragedy typical hmm. and we saw it in the space program yeah throughout all of the all of the the bad events uh, but the transitions to the new program again they will get and 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 it's okay to criticize where, where criticism criticism is due. I, I, uh, that's okay. It's a, fine, but get the facts and get it said and move on. And these days it feels that it has even got worse because it's like the media don't have the time or that they don't they don't take the time to get the facts straight. Yeah. And sometimes they forget or they don't think, they don't realize that when they criticize like that, at the end of the line, you have a young engineer working somewhere and it's tough and it gets demoralizing yeah. if you have the, the, the whole public criticizing what you do constantly because you are doing the best that you can, right? It's a, yeah, and a, uh, yeah, short answer is yes. I, I really took umbrage at the, uh, near the end of the Apollo program. And it was the same near the end of the shuttle program where a couple, even local media said, well, the workforce is distracted because of layoffs in the end of the program. So, so, you know, cross your fingers for the next launch because obviously that's the, the distraction is going to erode quality product quality, which is going to affect safety and that sort of thing. And, 
and and that's one of the few times I wrote a uh, op-ed to the to those editors and saying, "Hey, you got it all wrong. You know, these people are professionals. They uh, they know what's at stake here. They uh, and and you're probably going to see the these remaining flights in Apollo in the case of that and shuttle program are going to be the safest we've ever flown because these people are going to leave with their heads held high that that they uh, they did the right thing to the very end. So put away your pen. <laughs> <laughs> the only, and I feel like saying, and P.S., you know, some people have jobs that require real risks. Other people, their job is they may break their pencil lead. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that is so true. That is so that true. Is, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I see. I mean, yeah. you've got the SLS system at the moment. What's your thoughts on in terms of? Because I get the impression that 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 the the press in general, including you know, kind of new press like podcasts and people like myself, are not particularly friendly towards the SLS system. Do you think it will eventually get to the position where it will they will get good press, or do you think the bad press is actually sort of maybe semi-justified <laughs> well i i think it'll i think it will it'll go away as soon as the system starts doing what it's what it's intended to do which is heavy lift with one launch uh, uh, as opposed to assembling things in in space it it'll go away and the only question remains is will after that it turn positive or or will there be no coverage at all it's just well okay this is working kind of like it, it like like replenishing the space station is today there is not a lot of coverage of what we're doing up there because it's not spectacular hmm. it's and uh yeah i think it'll it'll eventually it'll eventually go as sls starts flying and hopefully Hopefully, there will be more customers for its performance capability as time goes on. It's, it's you kind of you kind of look at what the Chinese are doing, and uh, so yeah, it's, there's nothing like competition to to get at least our nation going again or motivated. It's a uh, we're competitive by nature, yeah, and uh, and and we've got this 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 swagger that says we, we should be the ones on the forefront of anything that's done in space, particularly for it's proven the quality of life on earth. So I think we're going to keep that. Hopefully we will as a, as a society. Yeah. Yeah. So, so China, so China and it's kind of, obviously it's been um, very progressive in its space um, ambitions of late, getting things on Mars, et cetera, et cetera. Do you see that as being a an incentive for America to really push on again in space? Well, I do. I do. It's, it's, it's yes, it's, it helps our space program, mm. just like the Russians did in the 50s, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think last week Bill Nelson presented that to Congress, the example of what the Chinese were doing as a way to to get right. more funding. So I think I can see that happening. So Matt, I think we have uh, 
overused. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. No, I, I, a, <laughs> no, I enjoyed it. And if if you come up with any more questions, don't hesitate to to give me a nudge. Well, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, it's such a an honor to speak to someone that's <laughs> that, that that was there yeah, for I, the first orbital American launch and right to the to the last one of the space shuttle era. That's amazing with with John Glenn and everything. <laughs> it's awesome. Well, just privileged to be part of the great adventure. Yeah. Yeah, really. In hindsight, never but, but Bob, you, you you will not escape yet. We have one question that we ask every guest. I will leave uh, the honors to to Matt. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we, yeah, we got one question that we, we we ask a lot of our guests, and that that is, do you do you have a superhero from the past that you would bring back and say, hey, look at look at what we've done. This is this is where we're at. You know, someone that's you know a hero from the past that you, that 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 maybe you grew up looking up to, or maybe someone that you work with. My hero would probably be my my dad. So so here's here's the story. So I'm a junior in high school. I'm I'm rolling in money, literally, because I've got I've got a, a part time job at a I'm going to high school. I got a part time job at a, at a gas station after school. I got a full time job delivering the Washington. Post newspaper, and on the side, since I have a car, I'm I'm babysitting and mowing yards. So, and and I've got a lot of friends, most of the guys that that I hang out with. So I got it figured out. As soon as I graduate from high school, I'm gonna live at home, free room and board, right? And and I'm gonna get full time job at the gas station because I'm a car nut. I love cars. And uh, and hang out with the guys and 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 do my target shooting and and this kind of thing, and and after I shared my plan with my dad, he said, "No, Bobby, we we need to talk," and and he and he told me he said, "So here's 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 what you're going to do. You're you're gonna you're gonna go to college. Uh, you you have this affinity for." amateur radio and electronics. So you're, you're, you're going to take an engineering curriculum. And, um, and, and since you're going to serve time in the military anyway, back then there was a mandatory draft. You're going to join, you're going to do the reserves officers training corps thing in in college. And, and you're going to get a degree and, and, and you're going to have a meaningful career doing something that, that that involves your your engineering interests and your talent and that's the way it's going to be and i just remembered that that that's the only father-son discussion i ever remember but for some reason on that day it 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 implanted and uh and it worked out that way Oh well, that, that's wow. well. It's my it's it's my dad's birthday, and and I can honestly say that he that I've got a very similar experience to that as well. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so and and it is funny, isn't it? That the, the just the just the odd thing that your dad says to you sticks in your mind, and you can remember it as clear as day. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, so that's a yeah, that, that's, that's a great story. And that's that's early fifties. That's yeah, that's. 
70 some years ago. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That... Still, it's still, it's still right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Part of the, part of the show, the show collects, uh, space music. Right. And right. I was wondering if there is any particular song that it's your favorite when it comes to space. Um, well, it's, it's probably, it's hard to say whether it's Aquarius or the theme from, I think it's 2001. One of those two. That's amazing. Probably Aquarius. Aquarius goes back to Bob, but the, the, the theme from 2001 is, uh, is more current. That's, it's a toss of the coin between those two. I've got them both somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you watched something like two, did you watch 2001 at the time? And did you think this is, did it, did it look like it, the space, you know, our journey into space was going to be like Arthur C. Clarke's vision for it? Well, I, it, it, I don't know that I said, well, it, that's really credible. It could happen, but I liked the fact that it made me think of the possibilities of, of what's out there and what could be done. Not maybe that specifically, but it caused this to turn on and say, well, yeah, hmm, hmm. Could that, could that really, yeah, or something like that, maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it made me think. That's why I remember it. And, and, and as you sit there, do you, do you think that, are you a little bit disappointed about about where we are in space exploration now? Because, I, I mean, I know I am in terms of a child of the, a child of the 70s, but. Yeah, I am. I, I think we wasted some decades uh, that, we could be further along. We could be doing. We could be doing things at least ten years ago, maybe more, that we're just starting to do now. Um, okay. Well, Bob, thank you again for your precious time. Okay, well, I look forward to seeing you in the person. Guys. Yeah. Any other time? If you, it's like say, if another careful, time, careful what you offer else. because careful what you offer because I, I get the feeling we will ask you. Again. Oh, we are. We, well, <laughs> if, yeah. Well, if we do like a special subject where we know that you've got the the inside track on it, well, yeah, I'd absolutely love to have you on. Sure, absolutely brilliant. Sure, I really enjoyed this. Anytime. Thank you very much. Okay, guys, thanks for what you're doing. <laughs> Take care. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive. Well done for getting Bob on the show because I think that's you know one of my favourite interviews because it's just someone who's been there, done it, saw the whole of the first part of the space i always i always enjoy hearing it from those that witnessed it yeah i mean he literally witnessed the whole thing i mean yeah. he was there he was there Witn making not history. only witness but but was part was of a, it yeah integral was an actor it. in it <laughs> yeah, <Inter> yeah no. <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah no absolutely still um, the story of the story of the of the apollo procedure manuals and that he had them in the office and he could have <laughs> sold them as, as yeah. trinkets. <laughs> yeah, so good. I mean, that, that's that's genius. I, I don't know if I could think of, of, of those things if I was in that situation. Eh? And It's hard to see how things will be seen by history, but, yeah, the moon landings, that that's so obviously a pivotal human hist historic moment, right? <laughs> yeah. And like, you so could say that he was sort of lucky to be able to watch 
Apollo uh, the Saturn V with Apollo mm. 11 go up because mm. if you are in the if you're in the control room you, you are in it. your console and you're yeah. looking at those parameters you are not looking outside oh god no so it's, it's sort of cooler that he got to see it this way yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right, Julio, let's wrap this up. It's um, um, if, if if anyone wants to go to see the show notes because we've got some interesting links in there, um, including that including Feynman's bit of the Rogers Commission because it's very interesting. It, it is a mu- it is literally a must read. Must read. Um, and where, it's where really they short. It's and really, it's really short, short and to well, the point. And fantastically written. Like Feynman just knows how to Feynman knows how to talk and to present. He's, he's absolutely amazing. So where um, where should people go for the show notes, Julio? Well, they should go to interplanetary.org.uk. Correct. And if they want, if you want to become part of, uh, want to become a patron, join us on Discord, uh, then it is www.patreon.com forward slash interplanetary. Now, and if you have, you know, if you want to join the Discord and you're, you know, you, you you can't afford then just just email me and we can see what we can do because we do like people popping in and giving their pennies worth <laughs> but uh yeah um so yes don't feel that you have to go to patreon but uh it'd be great to see you there anyway um julio what are you, what are you doing this week uh this week uh i'm this close to starting my my summer holidays oh this close Middle of the week. I have a few meetings until Wednesday uh, that hope someday I hope I can talk about them <laughs> freely, but that will be in a few months. And then, um, yeah, then I take a few weeks off, a much needed few weeks off. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Yes, you definitely need a few weeks off. I too have got, a, I've got a week of marking, a couple of festival things, and then I'm on holiday too. It's going to be amazing. You should come over. Little trip to the Netherlands. Oh yes, that could be quite a good little, quite a good little flight. Because, land, yeah, I think the, the the line the line of sunshine. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Land of sunshine and dams, and and, and, and pancakes. Warm. Yeah. <laughs> and jungles and 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 tall mountains. Oh yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, no, it's a, it's a good place to go on holiday. The old. Uh, the Netherlands, though, I like it. I like it. If you like cycling, it's probably one of the best countries to to go on holidays. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm actually not. Not joking. Uh, all these, uh, I don't know how many kilometers of yeah. of dedicated bike lanes they have, and you can get to places that with a car you completely miss out. All the oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. All the nature that you can get into with the bike. It's yeah. Uh, that, it's really, um, I, I highly okay. recommend it. There and there is Julio's uh, tourism announcement for the Netherlands. Right, that's it. I've got to go, Julio. I'm running out of time. Bye bye, Spotcats. Bye bye.